We're looking at Revelation chapter 18, and we'll be going from uh, verse 4 to the end of chapter 18, uh, verse 24. Revelation 18, verse 4 uh, to 24. Let's give our attentive listening, uh, for this is God's word. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for that great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then the mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And a sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our merciful God, uh, we thank you. Thank you for your call to worship and to hear you. Thank you that uh, 
we don't have to be the ones calling you to come and, and fill this place uh, as if we have to compel you and move you. You are the one calling us to fill it. We are the ones who need compelling and moving. And so God, would you move us, our hearts, and, and incline our hearts to you and open our ears to hear you. Uh, although these may be uh, difficult words, we don't prefer hearing. Um, Lord, may we find that they are nevertheless words we need, uh, words that give us life and, and nourishment. Uh, so speak to us. Uh, we are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle John here um, says he, he's heard another voice from heaven. And basically what we're going to consider are three things about this voice. What is this voice saying? And what is all of what it's saying? As in not just what it's saying immediately or directly, but implicitly and, and just even indirectly. Um, second, why is it saying what it's saying? Why is this voice given to us? And third, um, how might we apply what it's saying uh, to our lives, all right? What is the voice saying and all that it's saying? Why is it saying what it's saying? How should we apply uh, what it's saying to our lives, all right? These three. So uh, point number one, what is this voice really saying? Uh, in sum, the simplest way to say what this voice is saying is, God will judge all ungodliness. God will judge all ungodliness finally and, and permanently. At the macro level and at the micro level, he will judge all ungodliness. And we've been hearing that. We've been hearing that message echoing throughout Revelation and throughout this particular vision as well. Here's what else this is saying that we, we should hear. When it says all ungodliness will be judged, that means ungodliness is, is the very definition of all that is immoral. Okay? All ungodliness will be judged because the only kind of immorality is ungodliness. Uh, and so if one day all ungodliness will be judged, that means one day all immorality will be judged and seen be no more. All that is unjust, unethical, sinful, that's all within God's uh, moral domain. That's what this means. Flip this around. This is to say, to be moral and, and ethical and good is to be godly. To be immoral, unethical, bad is to be ungodly. It's all within God's moral domain. I wanna, you've been hearing this. And we've been reiterating this because it just keeps reappearing. Uh, but I do want to uh, drive this point home again for us. Let me make the case for this. First of all, the, this voice is pronouncing the total and utter defeat of and judgment of Babylon. And what does Babylon symbolize? All that is sinful, unholy, ungodly in this world, both at the, the individual level and at the more systemic level as well. And then as that's being unpacked, what do you see? Rulers and kings being judged. Merchants being judged. Shipmasters carrying cargo being judged. Those who are corrupt politically. Those who are greedy. 
manipulate the market, th- those who are selfish and spreading greed through, uh, through their cargo, spreading that across the world. Um, this is how God unpacks his judgment on ungodliness. Okay? These are not abstract concepts. These are tangible things God is bringing judgment against, political corruption, greed. Right? Uh, and so you have to go beyond thinking about holiness or unloneliness, cleanliness or uncleanliness, righteousness or unrighteousness, only in terms of these abstract, intangible terms, but realize it has implications in the real world because even what secular people consider to be truly unethical, unjust, immoral, or wrong, fall within, if they're truly so, fall within God's domain. As if to say, apart from God and his judgment of discernment of right and wrong, there is no way of of calling anything out as wrong or immoral or unjust. And this is an essential quality about Christianity. Um, Revelation has been stressing this, the the final judgment of God, right? Uh, the, The final ultimate moral accountability from him, and God, therefore, uh, being the one who, who gives us some rational basis to believe justice is real and it will be done in the end. Okay. And therefore, our moral lives in the here and now matter and they make sense. Uh, apart from this final judgment, we do not have a basis for a, a rational and, and moral universe. Uh, Apart from God, we don't get to have a moral universe, but purely, but a purely emotional one, where people simply live according to their feelings, uh, not according to the truth. Apart from God, even the attempt to live morally in the absence of God is really morality defined by human emotions, uh, confined within human emotions. Ultimately, it's an emotional life, not a moral life. I will live this way and I'll call this good and call this right because my feelings dictate it that way. And that's not ultimately a rational way to live because in every culture, in every time period, every individual, they, they're people who feel entitled to their own feelings. In that case, morality then becomes uh, pointless. Right? Uh, whether you live ethically or unethically, it depends on how you feel. Right? It's, it's almost like my feeling of one day preferring hot coffee and another day I'm preferring iced coffee. It's all, you can't tell me that's right or wrong. I'm just living by my feelings. Uh, why is that irrational? Well, because on that basis, you can't judge anything. In the absence, in the absence of God's moral judgment and moral counting, there is no judgment, period. Nazi Holocaust, Japanese colonialism, American transatlantic slavery. Uh, you can't judge any of that. Why? They, they were living by their feelings, just as you are. And who are you, who am I, to impose our feelings on them? Feelings are just feelings. If you want to justify the way you live according to how you feel, so is everyone else. And therefore, you can't judge anything in a context where God isn't there and his judgment isn't there. Uh, Listen to what this is saying. Listen to what all of it is saying. You are a moral agent in a 
morally meaningful world because a moral God exists, and He will hold everyone to account. Um, this is also to say, therefore, uh, since God and His holiness exist, it's from Him and through Him we discern what is unholy, what is sinful, what goes against the grain of His design. This is how we discern what is right, things that are commanded by Him. Uh, this is how we discern what's wrong, things that are forbidden by Him. Um, things we do with our body that's right are things that glorify Him. Things we do with our bodies that are wrong are things that displease Him. And, and this does not mean, again, uh, oh, this just means you're religious. No, this means you have some way of rationally operating in a moral universe. Uh, it's easy to, to take these judgment passages in the Bible for granted, but not if you start really paying attention to all that it's saying. Uh, listen to the context that it's speaking to. It's, uh, it's saying, God will judge the world, which means ultimate moral accountability exists, which means morality exists, which means you and I are moral agents living in a moral universe, not just animals, Darwinian animals, living according to their instincts and feelings and feeling justified in living according to their feelings. We have a meaningful way to live unto God or apart from Him. That's what this judgment principally um, teaches us. Okay, then this takes us to the second point. Why is this voice given to us more specifically? Why is it recorded here and passed down to us and generations after us? Here's why. Uh, if God is just and he will, he will judge the world and bring all things to account, then that means we will also be held accountable. And so if we go on living unrepentant, ungodly, sinful lives, that makes the imperative very clear. Uh, you must repent. You must repent. You must repent and come out of Babylon. And that's what we're given from verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Okay. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The imperative here is um, we have to repent. Come out of Babylon. Notice um, who this is given to. My people. He's not calling those who are not his people. He's calling his sheep who hear his voice and follow him. My people, come out of Babylon. Okay. And that's meant to contrast with what comes next. How, how do the ungodly respond? And basically from verse 9 to 19, just to give you the summary of this, you have essentially three funeral laments. Funeral laments from three different groups of people, the kings, the rulers who represent power and wealth, the, the merchants who represent the, the market and, and the economy, and the shipmasters who are subject to that system, that e economic system, who carry the cargo all throughout the world and circulate the wealth. They are one at a time weeping. Okay, and verse 10 begins with, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Now, notice what's happening here. The, the swift judgment of God, right, in a single hour, it doesn't cause those who love Babylon to repent, but only to lament. Meaning, 
they miss her. They, they're still in love with Babylon. They miss her glory. Everything Babylon represented, all the gold, all the silk, cloth, wine, livestock, even the slaves, they love what they had in Babylon. It says in verse 7, she glorified herself, lived in luxury, and in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. We saw in the previous chapter, in God's diagnosis, Babylon is a prostitute. In her self-diagnosis, she's a queen. And the ungodly are the ones who still worship her or mourn for her as their queen, even in her demise and judgment. They're not repenting, they're lamenting. What a moral gap and chasm between the godly and the ungodly. But that's not so far-fetched if you think about it because, I mean, we've seen even within one time period and within one generation, you have, you have one group of people who would say certain people are, are three-fifths human and another minority group saying, no, they're equally human and, 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 and have, have worth and dignity because they're created in God's image. Today, you have within one generation, one nation, a group of people who are saying life in the womb is sacred and worthy of our protection. And another group that says it's only worth our protection if, if they're wanted. But if they're not wanted, they can be dismembered. That's one generation of one, one countryman. How, how great would the gap be then between the almighty, holy, holy God and finite human sinners. Um, that's kind of what you're seeing here. Uh, what God calls spiritual prostitution and condemns and judges, um, the, for the ungodly, it's something they worship as queen. It's, one, it's something that they reminisce and won't let go of. Even when they see this great chasm between God's holiness um, and where Babylon is in, in, this, in this judgment. They hold on to their self-glory. They want to hold on to their self-autonomy and claim uh, all that Babylon claimed for herself. Right? Uh, I belong only to me. I am my own king or queen. Right? It's, it's my life. It's therefore my choice. Uh, and they weep over losing that autonomy. They, they're lamenting the loss of that control over their own lives. They lament, essentially, what they're lamenting is, God gets to be God over them. That is what they're lamenting. But here's another emotion that, that appears in verse 20, after the funeral laments. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Okay. When Babylon falls, the saints and the godly don't lament, they rejoice. When the saints see that God finally brings his judgment upon the very sinful things that they've been resisting all their lives, they rejoice. The things that they've been carrying their cross, denying themselves against, when those things come 
to that very shameful place of judgment, the saints of God rejoice. When the saints are vindicated and called righteous and they're totally satisfied in their Savior, they rejoice. In fact, in verse 20, the ungodly are recognizing their joy and calling them to rejoice. When the, when the boastful and the prideful are humbled, the, all those who have slandered the church and the saints, those who have murdered the saints, and as it says at the end of this passage, those who have piled on blood of the saints in their cup, when they come to judgment, the saints rejoice. True saints don't lament the final judgment. They don't lament the, the fall of Babylon. They, they rejoice in it. And they say deep down in their hearts, when they see all, all the systems falling down and, and the Babylon being destroyed at the macro level and the micro level, um, they, don't, they don't say, oh, poor me. They say, God, I love you more than all of these things. And they say, it is well, therefore, with my soul. Because I love you, Lord, more than all of these. John Piper has a helpful quote I want to share with you that very much convicted me. Uh, he, he said, quote, Would you be satisfied to go to heaven? Have everybody there in your family that you want there. Have all the health and restoration of your prime and everything you dislike about yourself fixed. Have every recreation you ever dreamed available to you and have infinite resources money to spend. All the physical pleasures you can ever taste. Would you be satisfied if God weren't there? And the ungodly are here saying, Amen. If I can have all those things and be absent, de devoid of God, that's heaven for me. And the saints are here saying, I'd rather have Jesus than all these things. Just like the hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be his, led by his nail-pierced hand. And the chorus goes, than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. These are truths that I don't know if many, there are many modern worship songs convey this, uh, that in choosing Jesus, you're choosing a life of suffering in the here and now. That following Jesus doesn't mean you get to happily live your best life now, but it's giving up your best life now for an eternity with him. For now, you're carrying a cross and you believe it's going to be worth it if through it you gain Christ. Romans 8, 16, 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer with him. The, the saints 
are the ones who rejoice even in their suffering if that means they ultimately gain Christ. Ultimately, he is mine and I am his. The saints are not like Lot's wife, who, even having been delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah, was reminiscing her life and looked back and became a pillar of salt. And Jesus reminds his own disciples in Luke chapter 17, remember Lot's wife. That's a, probably the second shortest Bible verse I know after Jesus wept. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Keep your eyes on me and follow me. So why is this given to us? On the one hand, it's a very clear warning for us to come out of Babylon, out of our ungodly way of living, living in sinful pride, in the desires of our flesh, living only according to our feelings, but rejoice in knowing God. Rejoice in living with Him as your Lord and and as your King. Rejoice knowing your sins are forgiven and you are citizens in His kingdom that one day you will leave Babylon forever. For now, you carry the cross of living as exiles here, as sojourners, as aliens, as rejects in the here and now. And that's the only way you make it out of here. Those who are, those who would be satisfied in heaven if God weren't there, won't be there. Only those who say, i rather have Jesus than anything will find their joy met in heaven. Okay, how should we apply this um, to our lives? I just want to focus on one application because this is pretty heavy stuff. I just want to leave you with one simple application to keep in mind and think about. Who is it that we're shown here to be ultimately vindicated, still standing, rejoicing at the end of the world? Who is it? It's the church, right? It's the bride of Christ. Meaning, right, God's going to keep his promise in the end. Uh, Nothing is going to come in between him and his bride. Nothing will um, thwart his um, commitment, determination to build his church. No gates of hell or gates of Babylon will prevail against the church. Promise kept. The so what of that is, are you then truly a bride of Christ and a member of the body of Christ now? Are you today truly a disciple of Jesus Christ who is carrying your cross and following after him, living as exiles in the here and now? Are you a disciple who doesn't affirm your own sovereignty, but God's, not championing your rights, your choices, but denying them as you affirm your Lord, your your master's authority over your life. Are you bearing each other's burdens? Are you growing in the gospel? Are you being equipped to share the gospel? Are you submitting to God-appointed leaders for the sake of your spiritual nourishment, are you obeying 
his word, whether his word is trendy or not. All the things that make can make you so unpopular, unlikable in this world. Are you doing any of those things for the sake of Christ? That's the so what of this. Uh, if we want to know if we will be standing rejoicing at the end of the world, we, we have to know whether we are truly a part of the church of Christ now. And we need to therefore make our lives now centered around the life of the church. Because the church is really where we, we hear this voice from heaven that says, come out of Babylon. Your goal, your calling in life is not to be her queen, not to sit at the top of Babylon and, and rejoice that you made it, but to be, again, an exile. Because your true home, your true family are not yet here. Your hope is here. Your faith is here. Your waiting is here, but the object of your faith is not yet fully here. His church is. So it's as you worship with the church, as you fellowship with the church, you're discipled in the church, uh, you, that's how you live in this weekly and daily reminder that you do not belong here in this world. And you're not called to try to fit in either. If you are fitting in really well in your world, there is something wrong, deeply wrong. Whatever God is calling you to, it is not, it is not for you to strive harder in this life until you feel as though everything is okay and everything is right. Everything's falling into place and life is just great. So that you can start living here every day without feeling any need of God. Because that, that would be when everything's okay. It's so okay, I don't even need him. And whatever you're striving towards to achieve that kind of security or comfort, know this, and I say this as a friend, that's not from God, that's from the devil. And, and pursuing that way of life is not a spiritual way of living, but, but a demonic way of life. I want to I be so comfortable and so successful, so satisfied, I'm completely okay, devoid of God. I think you can be a lifelong member of a church and you could have grown up all your life in the church and still miss this. Because it's possible to be physically a part of the church but not spiritually the bride of Christ. And that's what the warning was to the Laodiceans in, in chapter 3, right? You're physically here but you're spiritually of the devil and so he calls their gathering synagogue of Satan. So this is not, I'm not saying, right, plug into membership and start getting busy in this physical building. No. Please examine whether at the deepest spiritual level you are a committed bride of Christ. Do you say in your heart of hearts, Lord, you're all I want and I'd rather have you than anything else in this whole world? Listen to this voice. It started last week, right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And now, come out of her, right? Don't look back and, and lament at her luxuries and at her successes. Rejoice instead in your true 
Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And now live as exiles in the world together with the church. I was really encouraged um, just listening in on some of the conversations that the sisters were having at their book discussion. Um, it reminded me and encouraged me what, what the grace of God is meant to communicate to me, um, and that is, it is finished for me. All that is required for me to be enough, to be good enough, it's, it's already done. And God is not the one telling me to go out and be better and improve your life, improve yourself, so you become more acceptable, more enough. That's not from God. The message of do more and measure up more and, and be more likable and acceptable, you're not enough, not until you, you achieve this. That's the opposite of grace. That's the opposite of the gospel of Christ. And that's the opposite of the message that we hear and believe and hold firmly to as the body of Christ. Come back to this grace, this voice that says, look what I have done for you to make you enough. It's finished. You don't have to achieve, just, just receive. Be here for that. Be here for the grace of Christ through his word, through, through his sacraments, and even through his imperfect, still work in progress people. Through all these means, grow in your understanding of God's grace and, and continue to obey this voice that says, come out of Babylon, enter the new Jerusalem. And that's the voice that we, as uh, the people of God, say amen to. Say, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for this vision. We thank you for your word. Uh, a sobering, perhaps difficult reminder uh, of where we truly belong. And Lord, we do confess uh, often we do we do forget who we are, forget where we are, uh, what we're called to, and live as though, Lord, uh, it is somehow your agenda for us to, to be doing so well as to feel no need of you anymore. And God, would you help us realize that is not your voice. And your voice is, is if anything, uh, calling us to realize more desperately just how much we need you how much we should hold fast uh, to you and to your church. Uh, Lord, bless us in, in this. Um, help us to hold fast to this truth and encourage us. Encourage us as we continue to walk together, continue to worship together, fellowship together, do discipleship together. Uh, one day at a time, Lord, uh, clarify for us um, what it really looks like to be your disciples in the here and now to exit out of Babylon, perhaps to be in it, but not of it. Guide us, Lord, our shepherd, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.